0: The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised.
1: Hello and welcome to Film Jitsu, the podcast that wields films like deadly weapons. We are your hosts. I am Jay. And I am Mike. This week we'll get Mike's views on 2017's Book of Henry from director Colin Trevorrow. We'll also be counting down our bottom five film follow-ups by listing some of the worst movies made right after a director had a critical or audience hit. We'll offer you some staff picks for the week, and finally, Mike will reveal for me what I'll have to endure for our next episode. Before all that, though, there's this week's Order of Business, a movie so painfully bad that its director, Colin Trevorrow, actually thanked a random dude on twitter for a positive review (laughs) this was in response to his critically maligned passion project the book of henry
0: a good story is kind of like life
1: hey sweetie hi
0: maybe that's why there are so many henry and peter they're lucky to have you your father's lucky to have you too stepfather stories about good and evil glenn i know what you've done Stories about the human spirit. Mr. Sickleman is the police commissioner. All
1: well, this story is about my mom and the girl next door. That's all that matters. The Book of Henry. Rumor is Colin Trevorrow lost the directing gig on The Rise of Skywalker, partially because of the reception of this flick. Is it as bad as everyone says?
0: I'm really pretty baffled by this movie. First off, I think the thing that is going to baffle the both of us the most throughout this entire conversation is, is it Colin Trevorrow? Is it Colin Trevorrow? I don't really know. (laughs) I don't know either. It's going to be a constant problem. Somebody's (laughs) going to tweet us and then somebody else is going to tweet us against the tweet that we got for the first tweet. I don't really know. I have a hard time understanding how this project went so wrong because I have to tell you, This is a phenomenal cast. A cast that includes not one, but two really solid child actors. We get Naomi Watts, who's an outstanding actress that always elevates the movie she's in. She does that here too. This movie would not be anything without her she is doing everything she can to hold this project together I completely agree with you we also get Jaden Martell who's really very good in those new it movies whether or not those movies work for you or not I think he's pretty good as Bill Denbro, a, a character that I love both from the books and from the uh, original miniseries we also get Jacob Tremblay who was fucking great in Room with Brie Larson in 2015 when he was just nine years old. Not to be confused with The Room. That's an episode for a different day. But Room with Brie Larson, which is just a gut punch of a movie. And he's amazing at nine years old. Yeah, he's
1: pretty naturally skilled at being able to carry pretty sophisticated emotions for a really young age. Never mind in Room, but in this movie too. He's handling some stuff that really is surprising
0: stuff that has no business in this story but we'll (laughs) get to that in just a second because what the movie also gives us is dean breaking bad norris and we're out of excuses for why this is lousy because of that cast so what is the book of henry about basically we have a kid who is a genius he's a prodigy we spend a lot of time establishing the fact that he's a sharp bright little kid maybe he's earned some money in the stock market then tragedy strikes and this movie takes a real hard turn. And, <laughs> and boy, does it take a real hard, unnecessary turn. Let me give you the quick synopsis. We're going to have spoilers. I think that's just going to be a film jitsu rule. If you're listening, we assume you've watched the film. Naomi Watts uh, is the mother to this son, Henry, who's a genius. She is very much the child in this relationship. Henry notices the girl next door, thinks she's being abused, is really upset about this. And then Henry goes ahead and gets himself a brain tumor and dies.
1: And dies in in the middle of the movie.
0: (laughs) In the middle of the movie. If only it was the middle of the movie. Then Naomi Watts is left to listen to these tapes that he has left for her that is going to help her rescue the neighbor from this abusive stepfather. And that is essentially the book of henry and
1: somehow it's not only going to save the girl next door but also help her through her grief over
0: the loss of him
1: exactly it's just, yes. it's just this is such a twisted
0: concept i have to tell you i was done with this movie at exactly 13 minutes and 41 seconds when henry did the old jump all the checker pieces at once move oh. Right? First, checkers, checkers doesn't need a fucking... Yeah, it's Checkers. You don't need a walk-off home run in Checkers. It's fucking Checkers. And secondly, it's just a tired, lazy-ass way of telling me this kid is smart. Not to mention all the goddamn Rube Goldberging that he does throughout this whole movie. All the little Rube Goldberg machines that he puts together. And if there is something in a movie that I can do without, it is always a wise-beyond-his-years kid. I found Henry to be a little insufferable in that... He's a genius, but like, it's not a big deal to him that he's a genius. He's just paying the bills and taking care of mom and making sure everything in the house is in order while mom is playing video games. And it's really this obnoxious role swap. Like she's the one obsessed with playing video games while he's fretting over what needs to happen in the house. Did you feel
1: as though the the playing of the video games was trying to somehow set up what happens later on with her having to literally take target practice and and do all this like potential assassination game stuff with the neighbor
0: i really didn't because i don't think the movie thought that hard about it i think it was just like a lot of things in the beginning of this movie we have a lot of lazy ways of telegraphing to the audience who these characters are and what their relationships are we spend the early part of the movie in kind of a like a whimsical almost wes anderson style movie with this dark Little plot line of the girl next door being abused, but a lot of this movie reminded me of a Wes Anderson movie. Only my complaint about Wes Anderson movies is that they are they're shallow and empty and they're never really about anything. Mm. This might have actually cured me of that because I would have loved if this movie had been shallow and empty and about nothing. Instead, they just my girl this little fucker like a half an hour (laughs) into the movie, and there's still an hour left. There's an hour left of this movie when they've killed henry you know what wes anderson movie nobody has ever asked for a wes anderson movie about child abuse and child death involving separate kids for Christ's sakes what are we doing here movie like put this kid in a coma and wake his little genius ass up at the end if you need to do that but to just establish this kid and then kill him as almost like a plot point henry didn't even need to die in this movie for the rest of the movie to happen i don't think yeah i think that they were somehow
1: trying to make naomi watts's mother character into she was supposed to be maturing and it's an unnecessary sort of plot line i don't understand how she really grew by the end of the movie i didn't really understand her arc i also and i I was wondering what you felt about this there's a couple things number one it's called the book of henry (laughs) But, oh, boy, do we get Henry's but, book. But, I mean, do you, uh, you get... The recordings of Henry, you get the...
0: And it's all about his book. Oh, it's an audio book. It's like a self-guided tour for Henry's journal. There's almost nothing that I like less in a movie than when there's an audio recording that anticipates the reaction of the person listening to it. But especially in this movie, especially in this movie, it is outlandish. This is
1: exactly what I wanted to ask you about. It was
0: actually to a point partway through where I considered the possibility that Henry's voice was all in her head. I thought we were going to have some kind of twist here where I was like, oh man, she's not actually hearing any of this. This is, that might've actually been an interesting approach to say this was her kind of in a Dexter way, right? Like hearing the voice of a loved one guiding her through how to handle this really crazy situation. But then a couple of things happen where it is very clear that she is actually listening to pre-recorded audio by Henry because we're given scenes of him recording the audio prior to his tragic, child death halfway through this whimsical family movie. New film Jitsu rule, Jason, new film Jitsu rule. I need a goddamn child death trigger warning in any movie that we watch, right? (laughs) I I had no idea. I went into this movie with no idea that Henry dies and nothing about the first half would make you think that Henry's gonna die. All of a sudden, Henry's having a seizure on the bedroom floor and I'm like, what the hell is happening here? And I thought, oh, okay, like, yeah, he's a genius. Maybe this is a thing. No idea that in five more minutes Henry was going to die screaming in his mother's arms. Oh, that was awful! It that was scene, incredibly awful.
1: Why, why, why did they spend that that scene when he crawls toward the window, right? And he's yep. he's. Oh, dude, I I was I was so shaken. Unnecessarily. What is up with the tonal flips in this movie? I understand this as being a passion project for Trevorrow. I don't understand. Why? I don't understand who allowed it to happen. Partially what I've heard is that his confidence and his decision-making and everything else, he just kind of steamrolled over everyone. He didn't have yes men. Nobody could say anything to him. Apparently he was just like, I am the man, and just whoom over everything. So essentially, it was not the quality of this movie that apparently helped inform the decision to remove him from the rise of Skywalker, but it was the fact that nobody could help inform his process that he wasn't Mm -hmm. really listening to anybody.
0: I think a lot of this starts with the script. This apparently was a script that was bouncing around for a little while attached to a couple other people Hmm. uh, before he ultimately landed with it. But I mean, the film itself, the, you know, the parts of the film that I think the director is responsible for aren't really my gripes about this film. I mean, the performances out of the cast I thought were great across the board visually he made a very good looking film. Like I said, for me to have kind of a Wes Anderson cop, it doesn't have that. It's not as whimsical. No, but, but we see some of those touch points that Anderson does. We see Henry using old cameras. We see him using old recording equipment, some of Mm. those kind of things. My complaint about Wes Anderson movies is that there's always this distance between the characters and the audience that I can never connect with them. I didn't have that problem here with, because of these performances. I actually, cared about Henry even though I cannot stand the child genius character in a movie most of the time but I think that Jaden Martell is such a talent as a young actor it's cliche to say he's a bit of an old soul but that's also what the Bill Denbro character calls for is this kid who's kind of been through some shit and has to be an adult before his years and he does it in a way that isn't cloying or forced he's just good at it And so I think he was the right actor for the role. Naomi Watts is elevating the whole thing. Dean Norris, who isn't given a very broad character, does a lot with what is pretty flimsy characterization. He's next door. He's the police commissioner. We know that he's abusive. Uh, I think they handle that tactfully honestly you know the scene where naomi watts is watching the little girl yeah. across the window and we don't see what's going on over there it's all on her face and because yeah. she's such a great actress it's a harrowing scene frankly i would have liked to see that same kind of restraint when we lose henry later in the hospital yeah. Yeah. so nice most of what him. i see here doesn't fall i think on him i mean the story is what the story is the kid dies. The mom's listening to the tapes. And now she goes on this bananas assassination spy thriller plot. And it wants to be three different movies. Yeah, it yeah. wants to be the whimsical, lighthearted family movie. It wants to be the heart-wrenching family drama. And then it wants to have this third act spy thriller thing. And to be honest with you, I, I wouldn't mind seeing Colin Trevorrow's spy thriller. Those sequences were really well shot. They were yeah. well paced. If this movie had been that movie, minus all the fucking whimsy, it might have been pretty good. I would have liked to see Naomi Watts versus Dean Norris from the beginning. Yeah, for sure. Do you think,
1: for you, is this one of the weirdest cases of having so many quality pieces in place, but then somehow very little of it works when it's combined?
0: Yes, because... The three parts of this movie are so disparate from one another. Yeah. They could have almost stood as anthologies, right? Like yeah. like if, they, if you had had the first bit and the middle bit and the last bit and there was no connective tissue between them on their own, I would have liked to watch all three of those movies separately. I would have liked to see more of this cast working together. There are just a few things along the way that don't make sense because... The audience sees things that characters don't see. Characters know things that the audience isn't let in on until a little bit later. One of them that really jumps out to me, it's supposed to be like the touching moment at the end of the film. There's a scene early on when... Henry is trying to make his little brother laugh. And so he does this this gag in the hallway where he turns, gets a bunch of, I think it's styrofoam, and he turns on a fan and it makes it look like it's snowing. And he puts on these Explorer goggles and he has these two plungers. And he's almost doing like this ice climbing bit to make his brother laugh in the hallway. The only person who sees this bit is the brother. Yeah. The big thing at the end of the movie, oh. at the talent show, the little brother says his Big magic trick is that he's going to bring Henry into the room with all of them, right? Mm-hmm. And then he turn, he opens up this chest, turns on a fan, and it starts snowing in the room. It's like this Edward Scissorhands ending. But it doesn't make any sense because it's a callback to something only he knew about. The fact that the principal calls the cops on Dean Norris mid-talent show makes no sense. But she something does. Something to do with
1: she watches the girl as she's performing in the talent show and suddenly has a change of heart to call at exactly that moment mid talent show it's very important that you brought up that last magic trick by the little brother at the end of the movie because it really pissed me off because it was such a minor part of earlier in the movie it wasn't so touching it wasn't so important he does this thing that makes sense to no one else in the crowd and then gets a standing ovation
0: for it it doesn't make any sense is the biggest cop-out stupid ending. And it was heartbreaking because if the if the little brother of a kid who just died in the oh. school gets up on stage and says, for my next trick, I'm going to bring oh. my brother back, like some adult should have rushed that kid off the stage. In the meantime, while all this is going on, we have Naomi Watts with a high-powered rifle oh, deciding whether or not she's going to assassinate Dean Norris, who is the police commissioner. And that's how he's been getting away with this abuse is because... He's a man of authority and so nobody wants to bring him up on charges. And Naomi Watts has this moment where she sort of realizes, what am I doing here? This plan, although it is clockwork, is a child's plan because although Henry was a genius, he was a kid. And I shouldn't do this.
1: Never mind that she's stopped by the Rube Goldberg machine in the treehouse. So she's in the treehouse with a high-powered rifle. She knocks something in the Rube Goldberg machine, starts kicking into action. And then all of a sudden, directly in front of her, as if Henry was summoning something from the grave, all these pictures fold down of them together. And she has that realization you're speaking about, I guess. And then she comes out, she has the discussion, and it was almost suggesting, like, this was his grand uh, Rube Goldberg device.
0: Buckle your ass here, Santo, because... This is the part of my review where I am about to blow some minds. Are you ready? Ready. I have not discounted the possibility, like you were just saying, that this freaky little genius manipulated that entire scenario. He never intended for his mother to kill Dean Norris and instead masterminded a situation where Dean Norris commits suicide. So he gets the result that he wanted... By putting all of this in place to sort of save his mother, get rid of Dean Norris, because Henry is playing mental chess while we're all just playing checkers. And so we're all of these steps ahead. Here's where it is. And this is where I'd like to conclude, because you're going to need a minute to catch your breath when I'm done. (laughs) Santo, I think it's possible that the book of Henry is a secret prequel in the Saw franchise. And Henry is actually the jigsaw killer. Think it through here. Think it through here, Jason. The Rube Goldberg machines, the terminal illness, (laughs) manipulating people into committing suicide so that other people have life affirming epiphanies. It's all there. Henry didn't die. He faked his death and grew up to be the jigsaw killer. I'm sure of it. This movie is a prequel. In the saw franchise
1: perfect now it all comes together now it's truly film jitsu <laughs>
0: <laughs> nobody can handle that that i blew my own mind while i was watching it i was like what is a, the room rub- oh my god this is am i in the saw universe is this really happening it's all there i was waiting for the recording that she's listening to to switch and go uh hey mom do you want to play a game <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, Mike, assuming that your theory regarding Book of Henry is incorrect, and it wasn't a Saw prequel as great as that actually would make that movie, it doesn't change the fact that it is both a critical and financial failure of a film, and as far as follow-ups go, a pretty disastrous one for the director. Colin Trevorrow whose name I'm now pronounced three different ways during this podcast. You know, no, let's
0: just, I feel like we've gotten Colin, right? We, can't, we, we can be happy with that, Can we that, just right? call him Colin at this point? Is yeah, we just, right? I feel, yeah. We're on a first name basis with his terrible movie.
1: <laughs> I don't even know what I was trying to say now. The director followed up an incredibly successful entry into a giant franchise. He basically helmed and wrote a reboot of the Jurassic Park franchise with Jurassic World. Huge success, huge box office, pretty decent critical reviews. And then he follows it with The Book of Henry.
0: Ooh, good sound effect. I like that. So with
1: that, we decided that the best bottom five that we could do is the bottom five film follow-ups by directors who previously had had a hit. So Mike, I'm very curious to know, what is your number five?
0: In crafting the list, it took a second to figure out what are the ones for me that jump right out. And so I wanted to start with, I think maybe the one that is to my way of thinking the biggest leap between the first movie and the second. And that for me is undoubtedly Harold Ramis's jump from Groundhog Day to Stuart Saves His Family. Oh, jeez! Yeah. Wow. I didn't know oh, that. Oh, jeez! Yep. Harold Ramis followed up Groundhog Day, a movie that I consider almost untouchable with Stuart Saves His Family, which for those who aren't familiar is based on a Saturday Night Live sketch that wasn't really very funny to begin with. Never should have gotten a feature length film. And in fact, I, I think it, you might even say didn't get a feature length film. It got a feature length sketch that never got any better than that. And just heartbreaking for me that Harold Ramis followed up an all-time comedy classic with Something that he should have known was garbage to start with.
1: That's Stuart Smalley, right? That's the full full name of that character. And was he played by that that former senator? Al Franken. Yeah, that's right.
0: I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And (sighs) gosh darn it, people like me. I can't believe he
1: followed Groundhog Day with that.
0: Stuart Saves His Family and It's Pat are probably the, the bottom of the Saturday Night Live movie list for me. And to think that that was on the heels of... Groundhog Day is heartbreaking. That's an
1: unbelievably perfect, perfect pick for a list like this. For me and my approach to this, I went way overboard. And as an added bonus, in honor of the absolute train wreck of decision making that is Book of Henry, I decided not only to go with follow-ups, but double down thematically and do follow-ups that star or are about kids like Book of Henry itself. Yeah, it's kind of like a subgenre unto itself, these tonally daft movies that are either made for kids or are about kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just very strange. It seems like really big directors get a whiff of success and then set out to make the interesting movie that's either for children or, again, stars children or something like that, and it's just awful. And my number five is a perfect example of my theory here and that is Jack from 1996 by Francis Ford mm. Coppola.
0: It was, it was absolutely a consideration, for sure.
1: This is a follow-up to 1992's Dracula, which isn't the best movie in the universe, but I can't, you can't discount the artistry of that film, the magnificence, mm-hmm. the grandeur, right? Yep. This movie was ostensibly a vehicle for Robin Williams to play a child, and it's so grim in premise that the entire thing is, is underscored by death.
0: <laughs> like it's, Again? So in many,
1: yeah, it, it's very similar to Book of Henry. The idea here is that Jack is a child that ages four times faster than a normal child due to reasons
0: they because, never really say. Because, yeah. yeah.
1: He just does, and it sets up shenanigans where Robin Williams, who was in his 40s at the time, acts like a child. Williams' energy is right for this, and there's no question that he could do what's necessary, but... The movie's just so weird. The screenwriters and Coppola and even Williams, I don't think they understand 10-year-olds. I have an 11-year-old, so I just lived through that 10th year. And it seemed like Williams is just playing a generic kid somewhere between the ages of 7 and 12. Like one minute he's looking at Playboy magazines and the next he's crying like a little baby when he bumps his knee. You know, it it just... These are very inconsistent phases within childhood that they just mash mm-hmm. together for laughs. And despite the presence of the always terrific Diane Lane as Jack's mom, who, you know, she's doing her best here, honestly. Like, she's really trying to anchor this movie with some heart. You don't really care that much about Jack because everything is just a big cartoon. Uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, Jack scores a pretty shockingly low 17% fresh. Wow. And I think it's telling that uh, Francis Ford Coppola is on record as saying about Jack, quote, I don't know why everybody hated it so much. I think it was because of the type of movie it was. It was considered that I had made Apocalypse Now, and now I'm like a Marty Scorsese type of director, and here I'm making this dumb Disney film with Robin Williams. But I was always happy to do any type of film. Like, this is how he talks about his own movie. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> Just yeah, on the middle finger. <laughs> I considered it. I think for me, Dracula wasn't a big enough movie for me to want to include sure. it on my list. Sure. But I thought about this one for sure because I, 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 did. Coppola was one of the first directors I went to and said, "Okay, where, you know, where, where were the misfires?" And I was like, "Oh, right. He's got a, he's Jack, got
1: quite a few. He's got Jack, quite a few. Yeah,
0: yeah. But and I think maybe the only reason why is because for him, his standout films." Were other movies, you know, Dracula, although a very good film, I think is like B-level Coppola for me. And so if he had followed up The Godfather with Jack. It might have found a place (laughs) on my list, but you're totally right. It's so bad that we couldn't have avoided it here on our lists. Speaking of which, my number four is a sci-fi film that was wildly anticipated after a really pretty stunning first effort (gasps) by director... Neil Blomkamp, who made the movie District 9. And we as audiences have been chasing that District 9 with this guy ever since. But right after that, he followed it up with Elysium. Yeah. Yeah. A movie that didn't work and took a lot of people a fair amount of time to admit that it didn't work. Because I remember going into the theater to see it. I remember... My other movie going friends were really excited to see like, what is this next film going to be? It caught a pretty damn good trailer. And so I went in waiting for that district nine experience and I'm sitting in the theater going, uh, this is, this is terrible. And I hate it. (laughs) What if I'm the only one here that thinks it's terrible and I hate it. Am I doing this wrong? I don't really know. And then I came out of the theater and everybody else sort of had that same, like who's going to be the first person to say this was terrible. Uh, and it took people a little while, I think, to kind of fess up to the fact that, no, it was terrible after all. I, I wasn't expecting it to be this bad, but boy, it was.
1: It's a pure form of cinematic Greek yogurt. <laughs> it's one of those <laughs> things where, you know, people just, it's got benefits, perhaps, maybe some good visuals. Maybe it's good for you in some way thematically. Jodie Foster's in it, so it's got to be okay you know and then you realize no i really don't like the taste of this i really don't like it but i'm not i don't really want to talk about it and
0: it was such a letdown for me and and that's what i thought of what is the film i saw this guy's movie and i can't wait to see what comes next and this for me was the standout i i know so many people that had that exact same experience just Not only was it a bad follow-up, but it was a really widely anticipated follow-up that let audiences down in a big way. We want
1: to talk about letting audiences down in a big way. My number four comes after a streak of movies that I think might be the best of any director ever. And this would be Rob Reiner, who started his streak with Stand By Me. And you could go further back. I mean, the man really did make quality cinema before Stand By Me. Absolutely. If you go all the way back to uh, This Is Spinal Tap or whatever you want to go to. Even The Sure Thing, you know, a lot of people really like that. But I started from Stand By Me, which is universally praised. Sure. And then you follow that up with The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, and Misery. And then A Few Good Men. (laughs) I Mm -hmm. mean, that is a unbelievable streak. And then in 1994, he follows that streak up with North.
0: The which, wheels came
1: off. I mean, they didn't just fall off. And I mean, I guess it's not Stuart Smalley level fall off. Sure, but, but what is? But it's really, really close. And I swear, I mean, how do you manage to make a movie with George Costanza and Elaine Bennis as a married couple with Frodo Baggins as their son? Yet we're asked to swallow Jason Alexander and Julia Louise Dreyfus, who... We're in the mid-Seinfeld heyday, right? 1994. I mean, they're right in the midst of this. And they're the parents of Elijah Wood's title character in this ridiculously unfunny comedy.
0: Doesn't he... He runs away from home to find different parents, right? (laughs) They they tried to play it as
1: satire, and the film just completely collapses under the weight of its constant star cameos and this stupid tone that has no idea where the story is going and what it's trying to say tries to be funny, the jokes fall flat, tries to have a message, but everything it says about family is obvious. The references are so dated and the acting is cringe-inducing, especially when Dan Aykroyd and Reba McIntyre dozy do their way through an atrocious musical number that includes a line about their previous son getting killed in a stampede. Ooh. This thing is yeah. a titanic mess. It's easily one of the worst follow-ups by any big-name director, never mind one that was on a street like the one that Rob Reiner
0: had. Well, my number three is here because every once in a while, a director has a film that if you gave somebody a hundred chances, they could never tell you that this director made this movie. It is so far outside their body of work. It's so far outside what they are known for, what their accomplishments are, their style, their voice, almost a a paycheck movie that you can't believe was a paycheck movie. And for me, there almost is no better example of this than when Richard Linklater followed up before sunset (laughs) with bad news News bears, Bears. a remake to (laughs) bad news bears. Jason, Richard Linklater is one of my favorite directors. Dazed and Confused, Boyhood, which I know has its detractors. I'm not one of them. I'm not one of them. But the Before films are amazing to me. Before Sunrise is a movie that isn't important in my life. I watched that movie for the first time just a few days before my wife gave birth to our first child. And it was a point in my life where I knew things were about to change and nothing was ever going to be the same. And here I watched this movie about these young people falling in love and having this amazing experience in their life and talking about what comes next. And then we get this film before sunset, this next chapter in what comes next in their life. And these are movies that are just really personal to me. Mm-hmm. And so to see before sunset come out and then and then he's doing He's doing what? Is there is there another Richard? It can't be that Richard Linklater. What do you mean? What what happened? Did he did he do something wrong? Is he being is he being punished? Why is this happening? To this day, I don't have an answer for why Richard Linklater directed a remake of The Bad News Bears.
1: You know you're in trouble when you're doing a movie and you're replacing Walter Matthau with Billy Bob Thornton. <laughs> like, what?
0: But maybe this was a movie that he loved as a kid and was like, you know, I'd like to make that without a lot of the casual racism that makes the original nigh unwatchable.
1: I agree with you. And I really wish that I had thought about this one from my list where I was talking about movies about or for children, because that movie in particular, that remake, it's one that leaves me asking the same question that I ask about most of the movies on my list. Like, who, who's the audience at the end of the day for these movies? That was a great pick and I'm jealous of it.
0: (laughs) Thank you. I feel a little underwhelmed here with myself because you gave yourself additional homework. Not only did you say, (laughs) what is a follow-up here, but you had these qualifiers and I was just like, what's a bad movie after a good movie? So I'm so impressed with the extra effort that you brought to this.
1: The reason that I brought the extra effort is because there was just so much evidence of it. Like my number three, for instance, Who the fuck did Terry Gilliam make The Adventures of Baron Munchausen for? In 1988, I I can't think of anybody that was like, Yeah, I want to see this bizarre, vaudevillian-style, over-the-top, loud, bombastic adventure story with kind of crap special effects, honestly, that cost $65 million? That's in late 80s dollars? I mean, what would that be now? That's like a $300 million movie nowadays. It's absolutely fucking absurd. You know what he was following up? Was Brazil. He was following what's arguably one of the greatest movies of the 1980s with the adventures of Baron Munchausen, this flippant, weird adventure story. It was clearly a passion project for him. None of these pieces really make it worth watching. I guess in the 1700s, the stories upon which this movie were, was based were allegedly the second most read stories in the world behind the Bible. So these oh. Baron Munchausen things were
0: huge. Fifty Shades of Grey hadn't come out yet. Is that what happened? <laughs> <laughs> but nobody
1: cares. It's funny you talked a little bit about Wes Anderson and not connecting to anything. I didn't connect to anything in this movie. It's, it's a theater kid style movie. I think like if you're really into sets... You're really into big acting and you know maybe you're really into monty python so you just want to think everything terry gilliam touches is gold well it isn't he's a really unbalanced director sometimes he's super brilliant he makes movies that are unbelievable like the aforementioned brazil or for me the fisher king or 12 monkeys but This movie, I think, was just a a case of him not having any self-control and just going completely off the deep end with it.
0: This movie doesn't even have the decency to be the Time Bandits.
1: (laughs) Another one where, really, I mean, who the fuck was that made for? I always found that movie so incredibly mean-spirited at the end of it. When John Cleese comes out as the fireman and... (laughs) he brings out like the last remnant of his parents or something it was like that was like the ultimate evil had burned up or something oh god it was just so but he ends up with doesn't the kid like jump onto the fire truck with him at the end or did i just imagine that because i wanted john cleese as my dad
0: that could have that's that might have been well that's fine. fine i'm not sure speaking of guys that i would like to be my dad how about the genius ang lee listening to ang lee talk about the craft of filmmaking is endlessly fascinating you want to have a good time toss on an ang lee commentary track you're going to learn a few things this is a guy who made films as far apart as brokeback mountain and crouching tiger hidden dragon the problem is he didn't make those two movies back to back because after crouching tiger hidden dragon he made hulk yeah. That terrible. I did. Look, I know this is a movie that's trying to get one of those cultural reappraisals. Like maybe we all just didn't get Hulk the first time. Nope. It's a terrible movie. It The CG was nowhere near up to the task. It was not ready for it. It did not work. And that's not even the worst part of the movie. There are a lot of think pieces that have come out in the last few years trying to tell us that Hulk was about family or it was about this and that. And none of it works for me after making a movie as striking stunning and brilliant as crouching tiger hidden dragon a film that brought an entire style of filmmaking to the west
1: yeah wire work i mean that's something that we really didn't have in any hollywood movies prior to ang lee's work with crouching tiger hidden dragon it was such a striking way to shoot action and then suddenly afterward it was it was everywhere
0: it was ever. It was like bullet yeah. time, right? It was like right. bullet was, time in the it's Matrix. Just like sometimes it. in films, you get these things that make such an impact that they start getting mimicked and replicated in other places, and then parodied, and, and and that's how it ultimately goes, right? First is imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and then the imitation goes to satire, satire, and then the satire goes to eventually it, it becomes passe. Yeah. Right. And and now bullet time is kind of a, a cliche This was similar In that this is entire style Of filmmaking that people were used to In the east and certainly there were American filmmakers and film audiences That were aware of wire work and this kind But this was the first movie that brought it To a wide audience My mom sure. saw Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon exactly. exactly And so to follow that up with Hulk I don't know how such a thing happens I, I don't know who thought Ang Lee Was the right guy for that particular project. I don't know how Ang Lee thought that script was the right thing for his sensibilities. What's sad about
1: Hulk is the fact that Eric Bana, who isn't the best actor, was a good Bruce Banner. He was a good choice for Bruce Banner. It should have worked. Jennifer Connelly is in that as well, acting opposite him, correct? That should have worked. That's a good dynamic. Those two, they have... Very little chemistry. Nothing works. None of the acting works. The framing doesn't work. The CG, as you mentioned, doesn't work. He tries to line the panels like comic books throughout the movie, right? right? And tried to, oh boy, incorporating that comic book style really doesn't work. You know, something like Creepshow, it works because it's cheeky and campy. That movie did not, it it was like a complete clash of styles. It was just wrong name, wrong address, (laughs) Right from, Absolutely. Right from the get-go. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: That's a really great, great example of a piss-poor follow-up. <laughs> Coincidentally, my second pick is also a comic book-inspired movie. And this is just really, really picking low-hanging fruit. But again, it asks that question, once again, who did they make this movie for? And I'm talking about Batman and Robin from 1997 from Joel Schumacher. Now, a lot of people will forget Joel Schumacher did, in fact, make Batman Forever in 1995, and he made Batman and Robin in 1997. Somehow, this director, who is maligned, absolutely maligned, for the Batman and Robin movie, to the point where people forget that he made awesome movies like The Lost Boys, Flawless, Phone Booth, and, of course, Falling Down. He made all those movies, but the best movie he ever made was in 1996 in between the Batman movies, A Time to Kill. So you've got this amazing movie that he directs in 96, which is, you know, it's emotionally fraught, it's tense, and it's involving, it's got some amazing performances from a huge cast that includes Samuel Jackson, Sandra Bullock, Kiefer Sutherland, Kevin Spacey, Ashley Judd, and it's one of the first performances from Matthew McConaughey? In a major role, and it, I don't know if you remember it. It's it's incendiary. It's mm-hmm. it's really it gets you. It's provocative. Um, Samuel Jackson's really really good in it. And what's so weird about this is it's not just Schumacher directing, but his screenwriter and usual collaborator, Kiva Goldsman, also is the guy that wrote the adaptation of the John Grisham novel. So. You've got these guys, they work on Batman Forever, pretty not okay. They <laughs> pretty work not on, okay. They, they work on A Time to Kill. It's a huge financial success, Huge critically does very well. And then Batman and Robin. <laughs> and you got to wonder, how the hell did you do this? It's extraordinary. I don't think we need to drone on about how bad Batman and Robin is. I mean... Up until his death in 2020, Joel Schumacher actually was apologizing to Batman fans for disappointing them. Still, that's, yeah. That's really sad. And and not only that, George Clooney, who played Batman in the movie, he actually has reimbursed people their money for seeing the movie.
0: So, yeah, he continues to go on like a sorry about the bat nipples campaign.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. But so one of the big frictions behind the scenes for Schumacher was he actually wanted to make the movie more dark. The studio wanted the movie to be more silly, more kid-oriented, mm-hmm. and they wanted to because they wanted to sell toys, and so they wanted as many villains as you could cram in, as many heroes as you could cram in, and the thing is it's just a mess. It's an absolute mess from a story standpoint. It's you know I look I love bad movies, so I actually really enjoy watching Batman and Robin. <laughs> I like puns so i love dr freeze <laughs> has, all of his puns in that movie are wonderful did you you know what did you ever hear of uh fugu it's a japanese dish it's the liver of a puffer fish and it has to be prepared exactly right or else it might kill the person oh eating yeah it. okay yeah. sure right really. uh, so batman and robin is the fugu of the cinema world <laughs> it's skillfully wow. prepared lovingly and painstakingly crafted and it's still likely to kill you due to the poison contained
0: poison <laughs> ivy that is oh look what you did there get out of my podcast that's it <laughs> there's that's there's the door there's the podcast door sir <laughs> uma
1: thurman looked terrific in that movie though so
0: you could say that about every uma thurman movie that's, that's not true.
1: do you know that she's also in munchausen so she's on my list twice
0: if you are uma thurman and you'd like to write into the show please uh, contact us at j at net and let us know how unkind it was for him to speak ill of you also, where we can meet you for lunch. <laughs> My number one. This one's going to be hard to talk about. And maybe that's because the first movie is a movie that I don't know is universally loved, but is also one of those films that was really, really big. And then it became really, really popular to hate this movie. And now we're kind of back on the other side of that. But the follow up to it is a-, a bizarre mess that was doomed from its inception, I am talking about the follow-up to the Blair Witch Project, which was Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2. Now this one, I will be honest, is a little bit of a cheat for me because it isn't directed by the same director. I mean, the first one, it's hard to say you know, that film uh, to qualify that as being really directed by anybody I, so no, much I as made in the editing room, yeah, but, but these two films just couldn't be any further apart from each other. And so for me, I see this movie Blair Witch that blew my mind. I had never seen anything like it. I really went for it. It was the first movie that made me realize like, wait, people can make movies this is well before the days of you know run and gun iphone movies so i really went for the blair witch project and then the second one is is getting made and i'm so excited and i wouldn't have wanted another found footage movie but what we get is this bizarre it's like an art film kind of acid trip art yeah. film <clears throat> yeah that had very little connection to the original film and it was it was so far out there so far apart from what i had got the first time and was hoping for the second time in a continuation of the story. And, and it's a bad film. I mean, even a standalone, just it by itself. Book of Shadows is a movie that I think could be an episode on film jitsu. And so I know this is a cheat for me for a couple of reasons, because, sure. you know, we really did want to talk directors here uh, and, and I avoided sequels as much as I could. But this for me is just when we're talking about sure. a follow up film, yeah. I, it was the one that instantly popped into my head uh, when we were putting the list together. And so I thought it's reason enough for me to sneak it on here.
1: (laughs) Plus it's, you know what? It's film jitsu. Are there really any rules? I mean, really? There
0: aren't. Yeah, there's no rules.
1: (laughs) Not really. Just think of it this way. I enforce so many rules into my list that you could flout rules i've I've done enough work for both of us as far as following rules
0: (laughs) yeah i've talked about tom hanks fucking a volleyball on this show so there's really there's no rules there's really no rules
1: my number one is a movie that i think would probably make the most painful but yet perfect double bill with the book of henry this is a movie called the lovely bones from 2009 from director peter jackson now it's debatable what people think of King Kong. I think Peter Jackson's King Kong is a masterpiece, an actual masterpiece. I think it's visually terrific. I think the cast is wonderful. I love Jack Black. I loved seeing him stretch his wings in that movie.
0: Even that line delivery, I, that it was beauty what killed the beast. Oh. Absolutely.
1: I love it. I love it. I love everything about really? King Kong. I think it's a great movie. It did pretty well at the box office. It didn't do as well as it probably needed to do but it did well enough
0: this is a generational thing right where did you first fall in love with peter jackson for a lot of people lord of the rings was their star wars and so okay fair enough but for some of us we're talking meet the feebles here right exactly or being ride or die with peter jackson's guy, right exactly i
1: mean we're talking brain dead we're talking the frighteners we're talking heavenly creatures which is so incredibly similar in tone and in weirdness to the lovely bones that i don't understand why he fucked it up so badly when he tried to return to this very bizarre place. Look, if you don't know what this movie's about, here's a quick rundown. It's based on Alice Siebold's popular novel about a 14 year old girl named Susie Salmon, who in this movie is played by Sersha Ronan, and she's brutally murdered and then watches over the rest of her family as they try to solve her murder and come to grips with her death. So the first half of the movie, you're like, oh, it's about her trying to find her footing in heaven or whatever. Then the second half of the movie just kind of forgets about her, and it turns into Zodiac, but with Mark Wahlberg in the Jake Gyllenhaal role. Like, no. (laughs) This is a tough watch. It's an unbalanced watch by a director who I think you can't argue is exceptionally gifted as far as visual storytelling goes. The conclusion that I draw with this entire list No more movies with kids on Film Jitsu. Well, Mike, we've talked about some atrociously awful follow ups made by otherwise very capable filmmakers. Now, let's just talk about some capable filmmaking for a few minutes. How about this week's staff pick? What do you got for me?
0: This is perhaps mathematically impossible. It is mind blowing to me that after the conversation we just had, out of all the movies that were ever made, this is the movie that I had prepared for today's staff pick. Jason, my pick is, in fact, a Peter Jackson film. (laughs) It's a Peter Jackson film you name dropped just a little while ago because I wanted to share with our audience this week. I don't really know why. It has nothing necessarily to do with time of season, but I love The Frighteners. Oh, nice. My staff pick this week is Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. And it is mind-boggling to me that out of, you know, what is it, like Infinite Monkeys and Infinite Typewriters, out of all the films ever made, this happens to be the day I come. Maybe it just means I'm very narrowly minded, or I don't know. I guess maybe we've only seen six films in our entire (laughs) podcast. I can't say for sure. But I love Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. Talk about a film that is tonally all over the place, but it works because... Michael J. Fox plays a medium who is able to see ghosts and interact with ghosts and has ghost friends. (laughs) Uh, And he uses this ability as a con man where the ghosts will go out and present a haunting and he'll show up and exercise the space and and get paid for it. And it's very lighthearted and silly, except it's also about a mass murderer (laughs) and a woman who... May or may not have been complicit in the crimes. It gets really dark in a like real Peter Jackson getting back to his roots kind of way while couched in this silly, almost Disney kind of flick.
1: Yeah, it's a really
0: But it works for me. It works for me. It's a great
1: adventure movie. It really is, but it does have that dark, sort of unbalanced way. But it's not it doesn't feel tonally fucked up. You're not completely thrown off when things, when the gears shift with that movie. It, it, it's it mm-hmm. got some really winning performances. I remember Michael J. Fox being terrific in it. It's probably the last great Michael J. Fox performance that I can think of anyway.
0: And playing sad. That was the neat thing. You know, we were always so used to upbeat yes. Marty McFly to see him play a guy. The, the entire premise of this is that he lost his wife right. in a car crash. And this is when he picked up these powers. So he plays a very sad guy through this silly effort of a movie That gets dark quick. It gets violent in places. Jake Busey goes on a killing spree in the movie. You know, the villain of the movie is the the ghost of this mass murderer who has come back because he wants to set the record for the most. Yeah, that's right. Oh, man. This was 1996. We hadn't had Columbine yet. We hadn't really had school shootings and these mass casualty events that are tragically and unfortunately a part of our everyday lives now so this was a, a movie that was really digging in on some dark subject matter at the time and it just works it's funny when it's mm-hmm. supposed to be funny it's scary when it's supposed to be scary who is this movie for it's not for mm-hmm. children that is pretty clear it's got a fantastic poster too <laughs> the face pushing through the wall kind of pushing out from the walls of this big dark spooky house It's a movie I try to watch almost once a year, usually around Halloween time. I think it's great. If you haven't watched it, I think it's a movie that people might not realize is a Peter Jackson film.
1: The thing that I always think about when I think of The Frighteners is that it was produced by Robert Zemeckis, I believe. Zemeckis kind of gave peter jackson his u.s breakthrough after he had done heavenly creatures and i remember i had only seen it the one time back when it was released and i remember being blown away by it so that's a great one that's one that i'm immediately gonna go watch
0: and some really great small performances too i mean i'd be remiss if i didn't mention d wallace (laughs) or jeffrey combs who's the bananas fbi guy who's way into the occult it's a really weird role for just the right guy. It works. It that's all awesome. works.
1: My pick is in a, veering in a completely different direction for this week. We're going a little bit art film almost with this one. And that's The Killing of Two Lovers from director Robert Michoen. And it's a tense, compact, and sometimes really harrowing look at the friction between an estranged couple undergoing a trial separation in a quiet Midwestern town. The husband and wife are parents of four children And while their three young sons seem to be okay with the split, their teenage daughter is resentful and berating her father when she discovers that he agreed to his wife's demands to see other people. This isn't conventional filmmaking in any way. The takes are super long, and the shots are often static to the point where it can be really uncomfortable to watch. But the actors, uh, Clayne Crawford as the father and Sapita Moafi as the mother, are as genuine as you can get in cinema. Both characters feel super lived in. And more often than not, the scenes play out almost more as like a documentary than a narrative. And that's pretty disconcerting because a lot of the situations playing out are pretty cringe-inducing. In particular, when Mm. there's a scene with like a date night between the parents that goes off the rails when the mom's new boyfriend comes to the house unexpectedly and they're sitting outside in a truck. You combine situational tension like that with a really bold choice to use a four-three aspect ratio, and then there's just this additional feeling of claustrophobia caused by the black bars on either side of the image. So the close-ups mm. feel way too close. Especially
0: like the walls are literally they really closing. Feel in. that
1: way Yeah. And the scene shot within cars. I mean there's a lot of them in this movie. So even when mm. they're out in The outside in a wide shot where you're seeing, like, the sparse winter Midwest landscape, it still feels like you're crowded and like you can't escape this sort of downward plummet of their relationship. You can feel everything that these characters are feeling. And I'll tell you, the, the, the winter, you can feel the cold in the air here. So, look, it's a recommendation, but it's a tough watch. It tests your patience a little bit. But this writer-director, Robert Michonne, he's somebody to watch. He's pretty new to feature filmmaking. He's made a lot of shorts. I think that he's going to be somebody that's going to be a big deal. And this movie made me feel a little bit like David Lowry's Ghost Story did. Where, it, again, it, it, coincidentally, it's like another 4-3 aspect ratio movie with a very pallid palette, very muted tones in color oh, wow. and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's mm. very real and very... Challenge, and i really can't stop thinking about it so the killing of two lovers
0: that's what i want in art i want art to affect me and change the way i think and i want to be thinking about the movie way after it's done based on your recommendation alone i am there Jason, we have come to that part of the show where I get to tell you what film you're going to be watching for our next episode. Can't wait. I decided to go in a very different direction than Book of Henry and something that, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about the kinds of movies that we've been doing so far. And you and I both far and away are horror guys. Mm. That's our thing. And we haven't done horror yet. And I have a film that I think is perfect. It's perfect because it's a part of a film franchise that I know you love and i think you're exactly the right guy to talk about this i am not equipped to talk about amityville 3d oh sweet But you are equipped <laughs> to talk about amityville 3d it's so fucking bad <laughs> The Amityville horror and the Amityville franchise gives us an awful lot to choose from. Mm-hmm. This is a franchise that I think has, what, nine films in its the... continuity and some even films that borrow the title that aren't related Amityville to the... Amityville witches, yeah. Yeah, there's yeah, so many. those, And so there was a lot to choose from. And I thought, well, well, this one's <laughs> the one that was supposed to be in 3D. We got to <laughs> talk about that. And so I thought, what if we do our bottom five Houses. So, so let me let me get this straight.
1: Mm-hmm. It would be bottom five houses that we would want to be in, right? So, like like houses that we would absolutely not want to set foot in.
0: <laughs> Worst houses, so, okay, right? Fair enough.
1: That's. All right, I just want to make sure we're both on the same page yeah. for one of these bottom fives.
0: You're. You're always so hung up on the double negativism. of it. it doesn't have to be like a cardboard cutout of a house that <laughs> fell over when they made the movie. So it's a bottom five. That's how, you know, I get,
1: like... that's how we end up in softcore land. Like I know, up, yeah. Like, you... <laughs> the, the set design <laughs> in this movie was just...
0: <laughs> you get really hung up on the yeah. rules about this stuff. Yeah.
1: Got it. That's awesome. I love the Amityville <laughs> series, so I'm really excited. I'll probably end up talking way too much about one and two i do stop counting at three so uh-huh. <laughs> i don't i don't bother with amityville it's about time in amityville dollhouse and amityville whatever the hell <laughs> there is left
0: i considered how far down the rabbit hole i wanted oh. to go before i plucked the movie and at a certain point i thought well i mean we are a podcast about movies here and some of these i don't know fairly qualify <laughs> as movies really. so There will come a time where we talk about 3D in movies. This isn't going to be it, not as a bottom five. But if it's anything like some of the other 3D movies of its day, I'm sure there'll be a lot of things flying at the screen that don't really have anything to do with the scary parts of the movie. Completely
1: unmotivated pull cue.
0: Exactly. So I can't wait to hear how they misuse 3D in this film. I can't wait to hear you talk about a movie that I know you are passionate about.
1: I am very excited about this. I have not seen this movie in 30 plus years. So yeah. So this is going to be great to revisit. I really appreciate the opportunity to do it. I am going to hate it, I can assure you. But (laughs) so there you go.
0: Well Jay, that's gonna do it for this episode of Film Jitsu. It's been fun as always. I can't wait to hear what you have to say next time when we talk about Amityville. 3d thank you for joining us as always we have been your hosts i am mike i am jay we'll see you next time
1: Sorry. I'm, it's going to happen. Okay. I got the COVIDs.
0: That's okay. Oh, yeah, you got the COVID. It's good. This week's episode brought to you by the Rona. COVID. <laughs> <laughs> what our audience doesn't know is that you died of the Rona a week ago, and I'm doing this podcast with the audio recording that you left for me, and we're so good at it, I'm anticipating your every reaction.